the blast from our past network. Hey everybody, co-host Corey here. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up that uh, this interview was done <laughs> in a conference room that was not built for audio. Um, I recorded from my my studio like we normally do, and um, Zach unfortunately had to record his half of the interview with Wingshauser in uh, in a in a conference room. And the audio is echoey and and it's a bit hollow, but I don't think it detracts from the conversation. I think you can you can still hear it, and I think the conversation is outstanding. But I will let you all be the judges on that one. But thank you all so much for bearing with this uh, not so ideal technical quality. And uh, we do talk about the the backstory behind it on Wrap Up After Dark uh, this month, I believe, and some last month. So regular listeners do sort know what happened and why we got to this point. But it's a great interview with Wingshauser, and we really appreciate him taking the time out of his day to to talk to us about everything that he does talk to us about. It's it's amazing, and I think you all will enjoy it as well. So thank you again to Wingshauser, and thank you to all of our Patreon members for supporting the show all these years. And this episode pretty much wraps up Season 3. So we will see you all in Season 4 of Podcasting After Dark. Welcome to Podcasting After Dark Presents Interviews After Dark with your hosts, Corey Stevenson, and Zach Schaefer. Tonight's interview is with the legendary actor and musician, Wings Hauser. Wings Hauser, thank you for being on Podcasting After Dark. And it's lighter. It is. <laughs> it's light out. I have a beautiful view. I think you do too, because you're looking at me. There you go. <laughs> okay, we're going that direction. Okay, I just have to tell you, mm-hmm. this honestly is uh, a dream come true. Wow. Because I have been a fan, personally have been a fan of your career dating back to the early 80s. Right. Um, and, and, and we've covered several of your movies on our show. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And, and we're, it has always been a goal, a bucket list item to have you on here. So oh, joining uh, Corey and I, you know, is, is a treat. So thank you. Well, we'll see how you feel at the end of this. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> As going, what an asshole. As long as you don't, you don't hit me in the face, I think we're good to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> i slap you. Um, you I'm a member of the Academy. Am I allowed to slap? I think you are, right? <laughs> no, I can slap people. Oh, yeah, you don't want to get kicked out. No. <laughs> You've been kicked out of enough places, yes, right? Yes, I have. You were saying offline, you were saying that. Um, have you been kicked out of every school you've been in? No. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> no, I was kicked out of. Uh, I went to Thousand Oaks High School, and which is in Thousand Oaks, about thirty miles north of LA. And I grew up in the mountains there. And uh, I was in lunch line one day, and this friend of mine, Joe Combos, I never forget. Turned around and hit me right in the face for no reason. And we didn't even fight. It was broken up immediately. 
had this beautiful, beautiful teacher. Her name was Mrs. Lamb or Miss Lamb, who was the Arizona, uh, uh, she went the uh, Miss Arizona. Miss Arizona, there you go. Um, she, she marched us to the office. And in marching us to the office, I said some very uh, you know, destructive words. And I was thrown out while Joe Combos was suspended for a week. But I was thrown out because of my mouth. <laughs> and then I went to Santa Clara High School, which is a Catholic school. I'm the only Protestant there. I challenged the priest on, uh, that we're all here to create God's kingdom. And if we're not here to do that, then we're sinning. And I said, well, then priests are sinners because you guys ain't fucking. <laughs> and true. <laughs> well, hopefully not. Well, so <laughs> I, I get mobbed by the senior class, about six of them. They're pummeling me. I'm fighting back. And this wonderful nun who was like really sexy. I mean, you know, you know anyhow, she, um, <laughs> she was trying to break it up. And uh, um, I, I accidentally hit her. And oh, as I was being escorted off the school grounds by the uh, master, the, uh, you know, the head priest, he goes, you have just hit the bride of Jesus. Oh, God. So the next stop was military school, of which I didn't get kicked out of. I learned how to play the game, which was I scored touchdowns, hit home runs, brought pride to the school, and went from Buck Private so when I graduated, was a full bird colonel and the California Cadet of the Year. Wow. And scholarships, offers, and everything for football and baseball. And then I went to Oregon State. I get to Oregon State, and I just spent the summer smoking marijuana for the first time. Wow. And hanging out with these hippie types in Ventura. And I, I started to go, you know, I started to play music. Yeah. And I, music... She kind of took over my thoughts and countered my football career. And by the time I got to Oregon State, I went, I really don't want to play football. I want to get laid. I want to play music. And I created this club called Dirty Folk and Blues. And um, we had an ounce of marijuana that you bought for $10 in our room. And my roommate smoked marijuana for the first time, honest to God. He got caught uh, in an elevator and couldn't get out. He forgot how to get out of an elevator and totally panicked, started screaming. They, they got him out. They took him to our, our room, and there was the marijuana. The cops were called, and I was told by the dean, he said, you have 24 hours to leave this state or you'll do 20 years in prison. And in those days, having that much marijuana yeah. was a 20-year sentence. And I made it out of there with about 15 hours to spare and back in California. <laughs> I mean, people can't see this right now, but my jaw is kind of dropped. I was the first person ever busted for marijuana at Oregon State. I hold that title. <laughs> That's awesome. And you can't, you, you can't beat it. And what a different world now when I can go into the store and just go buy an ounce for no problem, you know, and have it and everything. And now back then, you know, it was just... No good, can't have it. I was walking down on the uh, Venice Pier. These guys were sitting there smoking marijuana, just like a, a cigarette. Yeah. And I walked by and then I had to come back and I went, you know, it wasn't too long ago, I was threatened 20 years life sentence basically 
because of what you're doing right now. It's so amazing. I mean, you have you have lived through so many. Oh, and by the way, yeah. I don't smoke marijuana. No. I can't stand it. Okay. It, it, it contracts my lungs. I don't do any drugs at all. But that was then. That was then. This is now. But to think about, you have lived through so many monumental moments. I mean, since your birth, if you think about it, like talking about your dad earlier offline, yeah. uh, you know, and, and you have seen so many dramatic changes. Yeah. It's got to be wild. It is. Our first phone number was a party line. You know what a party line yeah, is? Yeah, I remember party line. party line is with, uh, you know, more than one person on the line. And our phone number is 2478. That was, that was it. it. That was our phone number. And you, you pick it up and you go, and you'd listen, you know, you'd listen in on some of the conversations, which were like weird. Yeah. And then finally you just go, hey, listen, man, I need to make a call. You know, it was like, <laughs> you know, you had to beg him to get off. And so, you know, that, that was then. And now, you know, you can make a film on a, on a little telephone. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. My first film, First to Fight in 1966, with Chad Everett, Dean Jagger, and Gene Hackman's basically his first big film. Right. The camera was like a truck. It was like the yeah. size of a small Toyota. Yep. And that's when grips were really grips. I mean, these guys were pushing this thing. Yeah. And if you wanted to turn it, I mean, it was a major, major uh, move to, you know, just, it was amazing how big that thing was. And now it's down to this. I, I want to jump into your acting in just a moment, but I really want to go back just one step and talk about that moment in your life when you found music and, and embraced that new sense of who you were at that time. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'm this jock, baseball player, right. football player, stud. You know, it's where I get my nickname, essentially, right? You know? right. And now, but then you got into music. Mm -hmm. Like, what, how did you find that? What did well, you Everything was football to me. Okay. I mean, everything. I, I dreamed football. And football saved my life. It really did. From a really horrific thing that happened to me when I was 12 years old. And football was the thing that, you know, that saved me. So, um, when I was, I think, when I was like 10 years old, 11 years old, 8 years old, whatever it was, my father... Uh, started a little players group. It's called the Caneo Players, okay. which still stands today. And it was in this little dairy barn. And we all, you know, as an eight, 10 year old kid, we'd come and pound nails and, you know, do things and, you know, like, like a father-son type relationship. You know, I just like follow him around and break things. <laughs> but um, he, uh, he got the, uh, the owner of uh, Thousand Oaks, basically. His name was Ed Jans. He got him drunk one night. Okay. Got him to write a check to build this theater, which is one of the most beautiful theaters in California. And it's still there. It's nestled in these oak trees out in Thousand Oaks. Oh, nice. It's a beautiful theater. Okay. It has a light board to die for. And anyhow, we built it. He built the, uh, he paid for this guy, Ed Jans, for the uh, exterior. And we built the inside. And by that time, I was probably 14, 15 years old. And we, you know, and we built the inside of this beautiful theater. And then he cast me in a play called The Rainmaker. And I played this guy, uh, Jimmy, a young guy. 
and Bing Russell played the, uh, the, uh, the Rainmaker, and he was the father of Kurt Russell. Yeah. But anyhow, so he's the guy, and he, he's a wonderful man to work with, but he was very serious about acting, mm -hmm. you know, and didn't fuck around with it. I mean, it's like, you gotta know your dialogue, you gotta know your jokes, you gotta know where you're going all the time, you know, and be ready for anything, because anything can happen. On opening night, he took me, pushed me up against the wall, and he goes, you've done the work, now let it work. Let it go. Don't think about it. You've done the work. And I came down the stairs of the, of the opening scene, said my first line, and got a laugh. And I went, oh, good. This is too good. Throughout the whole play, I'm getting laughs. And I know... I, and this is not, I don't say this with, uh, you know, too much bullshit, but uh, I know I'm stealing this thing. Yeah. I'm happening. I'm, 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 I'm riding this wave. And, you know, they're with me. Yeah. At the closing of this, this uh, opening night, the curtain call, you know, we go out and take our curtain calls. It goes down, it goes up, it goes down. Bing Russell, beautiful man pushes me out front, and I get a standing ovation. Wow. And the last person to stand is my father, because, you know, it's like his son, you know, and he took, he took heat for casting me. So I'm getting a standing ovation. I'm sitting out there going, oh, I'm home. Oh, this is fine, because <laughs> life is a motherfucker. Yeah. But this is beautiful. I totally understand where I am. Wow. During that process, the whole thing, my father gave, gave me a guitar because he wanted me to sing this song in the Rainmaker to this wonderful actress then, Teddy Craft, who I was totally in love with, but couldn't, you know, I was 16, couldn't, couldn't face it. Yeah. So that's where my music started. Wow. In that play. And um, bit by bit, it just took over. And, you know, the first song I wrote was, uh, it went, Ants on the Ground, God in the Sky, congressmen running around and don't know why. Some bullshit like that. But it got me laid like you can't believe. <laughs> it really did. I mean, my, if, back then, if you could play three chords yep. and, and say you wrote something, yep. it was like, you know, it used to be if you were a man in uniform, yeah. you know, this, this was now being split. The men in uniform were very attractive to some women. Mm -hmm. Man with guitar, you know, with lyrics and, and the ability to write and sing a love song, you know. Oh my God, it was a different kind of woman too, because the man in uniform yeah. attracted that woman who like wants to be protected mm -hmm. or whatever. The woman, I'm just, I'm yes, you are giving an example. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. not all factual. I want to be yeah. careful about that. But a, but a musician, mm -hmm. oh, this guy's going to take me on a wild trip. Not only that, the, <laughs> the women are attracted. With the women without bras. Yes. And I <laughs> at the time, you, at the I'm time. I'm going to tell you, as a 17, 16, 18-year-old kid, in those days, yep. looking at a pair of breasts, I mean, it's, you know, it, it sounds misogynistic, you know, but no. it's not. That was the end. You caught that, you, um, you caught that fire. You caught that spark that just said, okay. Like yeah. you said, you said, this is, this is it. I'm home. Oh, oh yeah. It's almost as if lightning struck twice with that uh, one play because you you've got the the 
the acting bug, but you also got sort of released your your musical side as well. Yeah. Did you know those those parts of you were buried, you know, in there before it all sort of came out with this play? Well, I yes, but I, I knew it in a different way of thinking. I knew it that I was an entertainer. I knew that that was, you know, that that's and, and being a football player and a baseball player, you're an entertainer. Yeah. You know, uh, ask the Dodgers who won the World Series when there was no one in the stands. It was like, yeah. you know, no, we're playing, you know, and, and there's a whole misconception on, uh, you know, the play is the thing. Well, the play is the thing, but the audience is everything. This is, you know, uh, you know uh, that's what you're there for. You know, other than, other than that, you're just like stroking yourself. You're there to create an effect on this audience. Totally. And like Evil Knievel once said, who I quote, as I'm going over 18 buses or whatever, for two and a half seconds, half that crowd wants to make the way to make it. The other half wants me to die. But he said, but in that two and a half seconds, they're all going over it with me. Wow. And they're leaving their bullshit. And I think wow. life is so tough yeah. at times for everybody that, you know, that when they pay money to see you, you better have them in mind. You better want to, like, lift them out of there, you know? And it's not a Jesus syndrome. It's not religious. No, no. It's just temporarily, you know, letting the gas out of the balloon, you know, just like... Uh, you know, relaxing a bit. Will you draw people in in a certain way? I'm speaking specifically about your roles in many of the movies that we love. Mm -hmm. um, it's a roller coaster in that evil Knievel sense. Yeah. Because there are roles where we want to see you get your ass handed oh. to you. And there's other roles where we want to see you kick the crap out of some other guy. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking specifically about when you did Vice Squad, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day. And, and you were like such a devious, downright evil person. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't? Oh, God, no. No, he was totally misunderstood. How, can you, can you, uh... We got, we're going to get some insight into Ramrod? <laughs> I, uh, he was, um, well, it's a really weird subject. Is it? Yeah, I, you know, yeah, I know. If you, uh, yeah, let's see. Well, I'll tell you, but this is like, uh, you know, I, I, very seldom. I talked about this a bit in this documentary that's being done about me. Yeah. But um, when I was 11 years old, I was raped by three guys. Now, rape is rape, and anybody who's ever been raped knows what it is, that it just hollows you out and you're fucked for life to a degree. It just, you know, I mean... Every morning you wake up and you go, who am I, you know? I mean, you're empty and you gotta build yourself back up. It's so hollow when, when that takes place, especially if you're a, a young boy. Mm -hmm. And um, that was rape. What happened after that, these three guys, they were combing their hair. They were like talking about getting a beer, getting a burger, shooting a game of pool, and just like nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And what I realized right there, the greatest evil, and the, you know, people think the opposite of love is hate. Elie Wiesel said, you know, no. The opposite of love is indifference. Hmm. 
That's what a shark is. Yeah. It eats you. There's no emotion. That's why I put in that character. I just went, this guy's a shark on land. He has no, he has, he has no feeling for anything. He just eats. You know, and what he eats is human beings and, you know, tragedy and everything. And that's what fills him up. You know, so that's where that, and, and, and I've, I've been always able to tap into that incident, you know. I can only imagine you take those moments and you make it into something, you get empowered by it ultimately, right? What? And you take that and you go, th this force that you had on screen and forget about who he is as a character, right. but your presence as this big motherfucker, yeah. this, you know? And I remember as a kid, and Corey and I talk about this, as a kid, I see you, I'm like, that dude is menacing as hell, but there's also a light in there oh, too, yeah. where you're like, but he's charming as oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people love this guy. But I can see why. Oh yeah. <laughs> I was doing this, uh, this thing in Austin. They brought me down to the talk about a couple of movies, one of them was High Squad, and then they'd show it. And, and then you take, you take questions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, mostly like, you know, the typical ramrod male thing. You know? Yeah, yeah. And this one guy goes, this one guy goes, uh, you know those pants that you were wearing? Were those designers? <laughs> and I went, where are you from? And he goes, Ambeline or something. And it's like, I don't know, it's 100 miles away, 200 miles away, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And he drove all the way. And this was his question. And I went, and you, you want to know if they were like Jordache jeans? Or and he's like, yeah, I was like, you know, it's like curious. And I was like, well, I think they were Jordache, right? And he was like going, can I get an autograph? And I went, well, yeah. And he goes, but what I want you to sign isn't here. And I go, okay, so what do you, what do you need? And he yeah. goes, I need to go back and get it. Okay. He went back and got it. The next night he came back okay. with this, uh, this um, thing, this, this picture, but it was like a 3D kind of thing okay. in a case. And he had to sign it. Sign it. And, you know? I mean, you, you got you, you to gotta appreciate. Corey and I go back and forth on this on our show. You got to appreciate could be the most subtle thing you did in a movie that that stays with someone decades later right right and it could have been those genes or yeah i think about in in deadly force mm -hmm. you had a soccer ball right that you played with yeah and i'm like but you're bouncing it like a basketball yeah absolutely why didn't you have a soccer ball or basketball you know, know. And it, it was, like, that's all they had oh. and i never played soccer <laughs> played basketball <laughs> by the way by the way i think and Corey and i have talked about this a little bit one of our most favorite roles is your role in Deadly Force. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Dead, Deadly Force, because uh, we've covered Mutant, Vice Squad, L.A. Bounty, Deadly Force, and The Wind uh, most recently. Deadly Force is my favorite hero role of yours, and right. The Wind uh, was mine and my wife's uh, favorite, like, you know, killer or antagonist uh, role of yours. That's great. Yeah. Stony. Stony. Yeah. I, I like, you haven't seen Firebase Gloria yet. No, that's on our list. So, right. so here's the thing: on our on our show, we break down movies scene by scene. Right. Oh, really? People love it. It's oh. like three and a half hours long. Right. It's it's a it's a it's a nice long road trip podcast. Right. Um, and I, a couple years ago, I said, you know what? 
I want to celebrate your career, oh. and I want to start picking certain movies from your career. Right. Firebase Gloria is on there. It's right. coming. But we are doing, we tackle certain movies, at a, like a couple movies a month. Right. And we've covered those movies so far. Wow. And so we're getting there because we've, yeah. we've oh, literally great. broken down your movies. Okay. That's right. For better or worse, depending well, on how you think. Yeah. It, it was gonna be. It was gonna be originally like sort of like a condensed like retrospective, and we were just having so much fun, and we just we love you so much. We were like, we're just gonna make Wingshauser an ongoing thing on our show, and we just always insert a new movie of yours, and you know, we just absolutely adore each and every one of them. That's so amazing. You're so amazing. We love you so much. The, the thing about uh, for me as an actor. I've worked with all types of actors, you know, the New York actors, the Cleveland actors, the San Diego actors, the Hollywood actors. The thing that every, every take I ever do, when I show up on a set with a camera, I go up to the camera, I put my hand on the camera, and I go, show me the magic, come on, show me it today, man, save me, because you know? I, you know, and this one thing wow. that rings true for me is Bing Russell pushing me up against the wall going, you've done the work, now let it work. And there was this wonderful actor, his name was Richard Farnsworth. Yeah. The old guy, he was, he was such a dear friend. All that guy had to do was sit and talk. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to go, you know, I got this business going. He didn't, he didn't have to, he just had to talk. And it was all there and more yeah. because there was so much living in, in him, you know? Yeah. He didn't have to do much. Now, my feeling has always been that that, that was his way. Yeah. Mine has always been to, uh, you know, charge it with something, you know, put something into it, you know? And because the, the, the roles that are like, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am. You know, we were there at five o'clock, right? That, yeah. Now that moves the play along. Yeah. But there's nothing like going, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, and yeah. it's like, stop the film and look and just do something that just, people like go, what was that? You know, and it's like, You did that in The Wind as Phil. Yeah. You, there was, because that role, in my opinion, mm -hmm. could have been just a cliche, the, 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 the killer next door, Right. You brought a level of, well, what's going on with his backstory? Yeah. Like, this guy's clearly got some military background. Yeah. This guy's clearly has some demons that he hasn't exercised yet that's carrying out. Right. He went full-blown wacko at the end, yeah. but still, up to that point, there was a level of charm in there yeah. just in your delivery, or you turn your face a certain way, or you're chewing your gum a certain way. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's what separates you from that other guy. It was all those things that, that Zach just said, but like we love, you know, on the show kind of giving backstory if they don't if they if we don't get it from a character or something. And it was just so easy to create a backstory for Phil because of all the fun things you were, you know, you were doing with him and all the personality quirks that, that you were giving to him. Again, I want to reiterate my wife loved that movie it was her first time watching it um and she was like holy moly this movie's great you know and it's because you and meg foster were so much fun in that film oh she was great but, I mean, working with meg foster oh. uh i mean could you not look at her eyes for half a second okay so the first time <laughs> such an idiot oh no i go oh, yeah. are you it's like okay so <laughs> i fly into greece oh my god 
Greece. Greece. Oh. I, I saw, once you get that thing and you, you never let go. Right. Anyhow, I fly in. I find myself on the, on the Acropolis, nine o'clock in the morning, nobody else. I'm all alone on this thing, Dude. walking along, and I, I'm a historian. I mean, I'm, every step I take, I go, Plato did this, Socrates did this, this guy, you know, I mean. Thank you. Anyhow, I'm just like, I'm in heaven, absolute heaven, all by myself. Yeah. All of a sudden, four Greek soldiers dressed in the plume and everything are marching towards me. And I'm like going, oh boy, I probably shouldn't be here. That's what's happening. Oh shit. I'm all alone. I'm going to die or be arrested. I'm an American. I'm making a movie. Will that work? They walk right by me, go to the end of the Apocalypse, put the flag up, and the whole city of Athens, it appears, does a cacophony of horn honking. And it's like the symphony of all time. And you're just like, Jesus, these people are so outrageous. Anyhow, <laughs> so. Finally, nice and I've been there for like three or four days, you know, just uh, getting used to the whole scene. And Meg finally shows up, and I call her and I welcome her, and I say, you know, let's meet for a drink or, you know, some food. And, you know, we met for breakfast the next morning. My first line to her is like, my God, you have beautiful eyes. Like, she's never heard this. Right. You know, they're, they're like swimming pools. Yeah. But kind of ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, and she goes, she just goes this. Well, I use them to look through. <laughs> and I'm just, oh, I'm dead in the water. First of all, I'm not getting laid. Second of all, this is going to be a tough shoot. You know, and I thought, I thought, oh, my God. So now we do a seven-hour drive together. And we just fall in love with each other. But not, we never, you know, cross the line or anything. Yeah. But I just loved working with her. She was, you know, there are a few ladies that I've worked with who, you know, who, who have really risen to the film mm -hmm. because some, a lot of these films are hard hitting. Yeah. You know, I mean, season Hubley. Yeah. You know, we knocked the shit out of each other. I remember um, Kurt coming down to the set and going, uh, you know, season's coming home, some bruises, not looking good. You know, you guys got to cool it. And I opened up my shirt. And I showed him this huge bite mark oh. on my chest. And I went, oh, really? <laughs> he went, she did that to you? And I went, yeah. Wow. And he went, well, well, never mind. Oh, <laughs> you're good. You're good. Oh, okay. yeah? Yeah, I can imagine, yeah, you, like you said, many of your movies are hard-hitting. Like you just, yeah. uh, with Vice Squad, for example. They're hard on women, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think Corey and I spent a lot of time talking about the difference between movies now, the time now. You know, you're talking about technology being 180 degrees different than it was okay. 30, 40 years ago. The content of movies were different back then, too. Sure. And so, but there, it's all meaningful stuff. Like, no. even some of your, like, Mutant, for example, or something where people would just write it off and be like, ah, it's a schlocky this. Or right. There's, it, it's a time capsule. And I think that's why we love these movies so much because they they are a time capsule of nostalgia. Yeah. But here you are with these stories. You know, Meg Foster is is at the time like I don't think anyone else has eyes quite like that that no. are not like man made. That's you know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. 
Um, but and then working with a director like uh, like Nico Masterakis, right? I'm t I think I'm saying his name right. Yeah. Uh, he he brought out this this type of thriller in the wind yeah. that was very much an homage to like Hitchcock in ways mm -hmm. an Italian giallo, yeah. right? But it was it was so like there's very minimal blood. Yeah. You know, and very but the suspense is always high. I just I don't know. I it's mean, great. You, yeah. you clearly look like it's you amazing. Guys, you bring up Nico Masterakis. Yeah, and Nico and I uh, met, got on well. I flew in. We started shooting. Everything was going good. And the woman I was married to, at the time, flew in, landed in Rome, changed planes in Rome, flew into Greece, and a bomb went off in the plane. Four people are sucked out of that plane. It's an international incident. It was TWA flight, 8.40, April 1st, 1986. A bomb? A bomb, yeah, a terrorist bomb. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Shit. And I, Nico comes to me and says, we were shooting, no phones, no radio, no television, no nothing, no communication with the outside world. And he comes to me and he says, there's been a problem with the plane, but everybody's all right. And I go, okay. Okay. So about 15 minutes later, he comes and he says, there was a bomb on the plane, but everybody's okay. I go, oh no. He's lying to me. He's yeah. fucking lying to me. He's, he's killing time so somebody from LA can talk to me or else come in, you know, whatever. And every 15 minutes, he's updating me. But it's got getting a little worse. Yeah. Whatever. So I take my Walkman at the time, hold it up, and I find Armed, Armed Forces uh, Radio in Cyprus. And they're saying wow. there was a bomb on the plane, 20 people have been killed, it's a disaster, the plane, you know, God only knows. And I'm like going, oh no, you know, she's dead. This is fuck. Yeah. And, you know, it was just like, and Nico, was so kind, so wonderful. I mean, really, really stepped up to be, you know, it went beyond a director and went really into like, you know, a, a friend. Yeah. You know, it was like holding me, you know, it's like, this is horrible. So we, um, seven hours later, the driver who originally went to pick her up at the airport, which was eight hours away by car, calls Nico and says, I just saw her. She's all right. Wow. Right. So. Now it's an eight-hour drive for her to get to me. My God! And finally, she arrives, and you know, this is like, and now she's being treated like the Madonna, you know, because these are rural Greek people. These are way out there from Athens. I mean, these are mountain goats. You know? Yeah, yeah. And they're treated, they're touching her, that she survived this. Thing, she's like know? a saint now. Well, she is. Yeah, I, I no longer exist. You know, <laughs> right. she's, she's a deity. Now. Yes. So, She's on a piece of toast. Anyhow, it, was just, <laughs> it turned into be one of the most spiritual, wonderful, you know, uh, things. I mean, dodging death like that really raised the whole crew and the whole cast. Everybody was just like, you know, really attuned to this. At the same time, we're making this murderous film. Yeah. You know? So it's like, then Nico hires me to do this other film in Utah. Nightmare at Noon, I think, yeah. And we do it, and we have a falling out. And he has said some of the most lying, atrocious things about me. It's just amazing. No. But we were dear, dear friends. 
So obviously he got hurt. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I forgive him. I know, I know, you know. But he said I was in jail. I was doing cocaine yeah. on his set. You know, all these lies. But, you know, it's amazing, Hollywood. Well, it is amazing. Um, it's kind of a trip to think about that that was 30 years ago, 40 years ago now. Still, he just did. If you look at... Uh, what it was called, Nightmare Noon? Yeah. I think on the on the thing is where he accuses me of all this shit. You know? Yeah. It's amazing. And so there's the slander, you know, but... What? Like, there's slander there, but you I just know, you move on with your life. Yeah, but, you know, I, I know I know who the guy really is. Mm -hmm. And he probably was hurt. So, you know, I've written him a letter and I said, come on, let's get over this shit, you know. But he read the letter. <laughs> this thing, you know, I said... He wrote me a letter apologizing, you know. It's like, you know, I mean, he took a private communication and made it public, you know. He's had a few girlfriends like that back in the day. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, yeah. There you go. Yeah. I don't think he has a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, 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 okay, backtrack a little bit to the wind. You, 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 this, this bomb goes off on the plane. Yeah. Four people die. A baby. Oh, my God. Sucked right out. Jesus. Horrible. And so how far along were you in filming? Probably about uh, halfway through. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. And then we, f when the film is done, we fly to London. Okay. Because we're going to go to South Africa to make this other film about a hostage situation on an airplane. So, yeah, we're, we're in, um, where are we? We're in some hotel in London getting ready that morning getting ready to get on the uh, British Airways jet. Yeah. And my ex-wife goes, uh, they go, how do you feel about Gaddafi? You know, that, uh, you know, Reagan had just uh, bombed uh, Gaddafi yeah. that morning. And they were asking, and she was like going, oh, I hope he, I hope he, uh, he was killed and everybody else, his children, you know, because he was part of this bombing that was like, you know, Libya was behind us. And she was pissed off at us. So that night we fly over Libya in a British Airways jet. It was like, oh, are you serious? We get to Africa, we get to South Africa. I wake up the next morning in Johannesburg in this hotel. Oh I walk downstairs, I look at the newspaper and on, the, on the, um, the headlines, big, bold black letters, all blacks are coming. And I'm like, going, you know, we've just gone through this terrorist thing. Now 35 million black people are coming to Johannesburg. I think they're going to come and riot and kill me. Yeah. You know, I look like an Afrikaner yeah. who hates black people. You know, they don't see the liberal white guy no. from America. You no. know, look. And I'm like, going, we got to get out of here. This is all going too far. And as I'm freaking out, panicking, this guy goes, oh, the old blacks, yeah, they're coming. I'm like, going, well, what? Because yeah, yeah, the New Zealand uh, rugby team. Yeah, that's... And I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? I, I don't know anything about rugby. He was like, oh, no, man, it's a big deal here. They're playing the Springboks. And it's like, this is a rugby team called the All Blacks? Yeah. What, what, what kind of... I mean, that's, you know... With the New Zealand flag, they got that, that the feather or whatever as their logo. Whatever. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. Holy shit. Jesus, I ended up living in Soweto. Soweto, South Africa. Oh my God, it was brilliant. 
after, really? after you made this movie? Yeah, I mean, uh, the next movie I made there, 1989. I lived there during, uh, like, a few months before Nelson was uh, released. But it was incredible. It was like it was like being in the 60s. The apartheid was just falling apart. You know, yeah. it's like the white people were just freaking out, going, you know, they thought, you know, karma was going to come and hit them over the head. And, you know, Nelson prevented that. You know, he was yep. like, I forgive you. <laughs> How do you forgive that? 27 years in a prison. But anyhow, he, um, he was so beautiful, and so was his wife. Winnie Mandela was just incredible. She, in a, in a way, was so impressive because even though Nelson was in prison for 27 years, he was in prison. She was in solitary confinement for a year. Yeah. She was out here being arrested, being beaten, probably raped, who knows what was going on, yeah. you know? So she was doing the footwork, and he was getting all the glory, and she was getting all the crap. But Winnie Mandela was just an amazing woman. As I'm sitting here listening to you talk, uh -huh. and, and your, your depth of knowledge uh -huh. and, and on, on various subjects and whatnot, uh -huh. and, and, and who you are as a person, um, is, is really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> It really is like you know, and 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 I think there is a not everybody gets to see that side of a of a performer of an artist. You, know, you only see the the one side. Many people only see the one side on screen or on stage performing. Right. Um, but here you are, truly who Wings Hauser is. Yeah. Right? Yes. Wings living right. You're living right now. You know. <laughs> And, and there's a beauty in that, and this idea of like this name, Living Right, which I kind of want. I know Corey and I were both like, where's that Living Right come from? Because it's beautiful. Right. But you're Living Right right now. Yeah. I am. I'm, you know, an amazing thing happened to me. I moved, I went, I, I went from a 19 room house in the Hollywood Hills that was built in 1926 to a 30-foot sailboat mm. and loved every minute. Wow. I just, it was, you know, I'd gone through this horrible divorce. Just killed me. It was just, oh, just tore me apart. And I, um, I moved on to the sailboat and it was just fantastic. And it was like being in a womb. And, you know, you just, sometimes you just need to <laughs> escape it all, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, it costs like, I think it costs $271 a month to live there with water and electricity free. I mean, it was like, you know, I was making a good salary and I was just like, this is great. Yeah. So the thing is, is that uh, one day I met this girl and she was younger than I was and she was here doing, uh, she was from uh, New York and doing, um, she was an up here. Okay. Yeah. So um, anyhow, we got to talking and, you know, she was so smart and so intelligent. And I found out that she graduated NYU with a master's degree as a teenager. She was skipped out of high school, does not have a high school diploma and has a master's degree. Wow. And um, in, um, in theater and uh, I guess motion pictures and anthropology, mm. you know, which is like, it's, she's so smart, so intelligent. So anyhow, 
She goes back to New York a year later, whatever it was. She comes back here, and she's working again with this guy. And um, I, I hire her to type this script, to type this idea that I've been hired to do. And um, she's, I, I, I was drinking quite a bit in those days. So I went, well, I'm going to go to the bar. If you want to you know, keep doing this, that'd be great. So, you know, she's doing it, and I come back, and she's written this scene that has nocturnal symphony in it. And I go, my God, that's beautiful. Yeah. And I hired her right on the spot to co-write it. And during this whole co-writing thing, I just fell in love with this girl. Mm. It was just fantastic. I was drinking. I was smoking. I was, you know, fucking anything I could. I mean, it was just like, you know, which, uh, but I mean, you know, I mean, okay, but I mean, it's just like, I was so out of control. And this- At that, at that time. Yeah, you know, I was going, the divorce just sent me over the, you know, to yeah. the brink. Yeah. And I, you know, I just became this stupid kid. I was just in love, you know? And through it, I quit smoking. I quit drinking. You know, I haven't had a drop. There I don't go. smoke anymore. I'm a goddamn vegetarian. <laughs> You're a hippie. I'm, I'm worse, man. I'm, I'm, I might be a vegan soon. I don't know. You know, Not it's the like B word. I, you know, you get to that age. You get to my age. You know, you really. Here's what I feel. I feel you. you sp I spent the first forty years fucking it up. Now I'm going to spend the next forty years unfucking. You know, which is like, uh, you know, I mean. Not too long ago, my elbow just decided it would blow up to a balloon, you know? I mean, there are things that happen as you age yeah. that you have no idea. And you go, to, you go to sleep one night, and the next morning you wake up with this whole new thing. Yeah. It didn't take months. It's just like, oh, I have this growth on my head, yeah. you know? So I want to put a time-lapse camera like they do on flowers. Right, <laughs> absolutely. Where the hell did that come from? So, so but anyhow, she, she rode this thing through me. You know I mean, I, this whole thing, she stayed with me. I mean, like, you know, I mean, coming off of booze and cigarettes and things, it's not easy. No, you're not probably the best person to be around at times. No, no. I ended up at Cedars in the uh, respiratory, uh, what is it called, the respiratory uh, ICU. A friend of mine, I can't name, but you probably guess him if you think to him. We, he and I, we're, we did this show together for about three and a half, four years. And he was, he was pretty well known for his abuse. And I saw him about 10 years ago. And I told him, I said, you know, yeah, I ended up at Cedars. You know? And he goes, how many times did you go to Cedars? I went, well, one time. Cedars being the hospital. Yeah. And, he, and I said, one time. And he goes, oh, I've been there 27 times. I've been pronounced dead. And... I hold the highest blood alcohol content ever recorded at Cedars without dying. <laughs> We're, of course, talking about uh, James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, my, my good pal. All yeah, right. Wow. That blood alcohol content, that's some real neon slime right there. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out a way to work neon slime in because I, I can't can't not. I absolutely love that song so much. It's great. I involved him in that. He, said, he, he sings that song all this time to me. Really? Yeah, yeah it's a great song. I mean, there's a, there's a little hint of, uh, we talked about this on the podcast, we t there's a hint of... Uh, 
like some thin Lizzie in there, a little bit of that heavy kind of Sabbath just element to it. And yeah. The guitar work is great too. Guitar work is wonderful. Isn't it? Yeah. It's a great song. You could put that song on the radio now or whatever spot. You know, there's some guy who's doing it right now who was wow. produced by a guy named Hauser. And I don't know, he's, he's, he's some guy. If you look up uh, Neon Slime, there's some guy doing that song. And trying to sound. Yeah, I, I think I found it because I've been trying to find it on Spotify, but I don't think your version is on Spotify. I think it's his version, maybe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I want your version. I think so. is the one I love. I want to wrap up your relationship that you're talking about right now because which one? The, you're the one that changed your life in a good way. Oh yeah. Right. Here you are at a place in your life where you, yeah, like you said, a vegan, right? Potentially. <laughs> Potentially. Potentially. Because I got to tell you, there's certain fish that I just love. But uh, <laughs> but you you made a movie with with your partner as well, right? Oh yeah, this was great. This uh, God, she's I, it, it just blows me away. You know, first of all, let me just say this: she um, she recorded an album too. Okay, that accompanies this movie, but it's a separate album, and. The uh, one of the songs on that we re-recorded, and it's uh, on the it's the title song of this documentary that's being done, called uh, Wingshauser, Working Class Actor. I think it'll come out in a few months. You know? But um, she makes this album, you know, and it's my music and her lyrics, which are just fantastic lyrics, and and you know, it kind of gets released. And it takes off all over the world. The other day, we go to the post office. This is like two or three days ago. Okay. We go to the post office. And there's something from um, Afghan, which is like the yeah. writers. Um, I still get residuals. There you go. Well, this is her first big check. Nice. And we don't know it. But I see it's ASCAP, and I go, oh, boy. That kind of big envelope. Yep, yep, yep. The big envelope. <laughs> I saved them all. Yeah. <laughs> and I handed it to her and she opened it. And it was just like, you know, it brings tears to your eyes. Yeah. When somebody you love is, 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 it's happening. Yeah. And it's not just, the, you know, when I watched her record this thing and, and arrange it with all these musicians going, I need this, I want this. And they, and they were all looking at her like, who the fuck is this girl? And then, you know, after, after the whole thing, they were in love with her. You know, and like going, God, I loved what I did in this, you know. It's, it's just a beautiful album. But now it's playing all over the world. It's fantastic. With the movie. But, I mean, as the movie is too. But it was such a beautiful moment to get acknowledged and to see, because you really don't see who's listening to your music. Yeah. You know, in Africa, you don't know. No. But when you get the check, you know that there are people out there. Yeah, the breakdown or whatever. And this is the writing. It's not performing. This is just writing it. And this is a, a nice large check of which I will be living off of. But, uh, You'll be living right off of That's right, baby. You own it away. How much? But, um, so Thank you, Paul. That Williams. was great. But in doing this film, um, I, the, I think the change, I, I don't think she would be upset if I said this, but she went on like about six or seven interviews and I think three or four of them she was offered them, but it was like nudity and be a hooker, you know, and be this. And, yeah. and she is really a, she's, you know, she, she would never say she's an activist. Anyhow, 
She writes this script. She gives it to me and asks me if I do it, and of course I'm going to do it, you know. Yeah. But then I read it, and it's just great. Okay. And, it's, and um, then, uh, you know, she puts the money together. It's, you know, she does that. Then she casts this thing. She puts a crew together, all-female crew. Wow. All-female when it was like, you know, not the thing to do. Yeah. And makes this film. Then sees it through. Gets it to the Academy, and they say, we'd like you to contend. And it is now, it's called Even God. This female is not yet rated. And it's a 2020 Academy Award contender. Fantastic. Now, it didn't get nominated, but she made it for a nickel. Hey. You know, but it is an Academy Award contender. And there are very few people who can say that. No, you, you can know, slap 20. that on the box or whatever. Oh, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Are you, are you kidding? It's, it's Cali Lily Indies. No, Academy Award contender, Cali Lily Indies. And Cali Lily's music can be found everywhere? Yeah, you, I think you go to Cali Lily Indies. Okay. It's C A L I L I L I Indies. And, um, and even God, this, this female is not yet rated. That's kind of how you forgot. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how you get there. Yeah. But anyhow, and the thing is, is that she acted in it also. And if you really listen, if you really watch this film, you'll see it's, it's very scientific. It's got incredible thought processes in it, but it's delivered from this young girl who sounds like, you know, Tinkerbell. I mean, she kind of, you know, it's like, and it's, it's actually uh, from the mouths of babes, you know, and that's what, it, and it's, it's uh, you know, an over, it's a, it's a long-awaited argument between God and Eve. Mm. And Eve seems to be winning because she wrote it. I love that. If I wrote it, God would have something more to say about this. And you play God, obviously. I play at it. It's amazing. I played the devil. Now I, I play God. <laughs> but it's basically a two-character piece. And it's done in Zoom. You know, they, yeah. They're never in the same room. Because we're talking pandemic time when you were making this. Mm -mm. Now, pre? Oh, yeah, pandemic. Now she was getting ready to do her next film. Great. Yeah, and she, uh, by the way, she's already made back the money that was put into doing it. Fantastic. So now we start, she starts again, you know, and they, you know, there are people, I'm sure there are, you know, people go, one idiot went, oh, it's too long. And then I realized well, all he's ever done is make shorts. Okay. As a, as a filmmaker, you know, you go, oh, okay. Well, we, we even say on the show, not every movie is made for every person. No, and, no. And if you like it, that's all that matters. That's it. Period. And I would say 60 to 75% of the people, the reviews are, actually, there's only one bad review. But I would say, I'd probably say around 70% of the people, you know, like it. Maybe 50 or 40 love it. And there are people all over the world, you know. I mean, people who are into, like, People talking on film, yeah. you know, and like it's so. What a novel idea, <laughs> isn't it? It's actually, listening to someone, and, yeah. and you brought up, you know, something that triggered a memory in me. Um, we were talking earlier before we started the interview that my son, I feel in many ways, is, has a level of enlightenment that he taps into on a regular basis. And uh, if we only listened, 
more to people who might we might not put on that pedestal of right maybe you don't you don't need all that all those accolades right to be the person that has the voice that yeah. encourages you drives you gives you that aha moment yeah and you know when that changed when entertainment tonight went oh this film made a hundred million dollars yeah that's what became important yep that's why people would go it made 50 million dollars at the box office this week let's go that's what matters because there was only like one barometer of like what would make something successful at that point you know right very good <laughs> yeah. Oregon, huh? you smoking that shit up there? oh you know it <laughs> all the time <laughs> i i've got to tell you um where the hell does living right come from okay so um, the first <laughs> album which you don't have i know i need that yeah but you can get it as a matter of fact if you go to Vision of Sunshine, you'll see and, and you see the reviews and that it's considered a classic. And it really is. We have cellos, banjos, you know, classical, you know, music. But I mean, and we were the first person to, uh, we were the first group to ever record Mr. Bojangles other than Jerry Jeff Walker. Wow. We were told by Luigi and Hugo, the presidents of uh, Afro Embassy at the time, It'd be cheaper to kill you than pay you. And you don't have a hit song. And we were like going, well, I think Mr. Bojangles could do it. Yeah, no hit here. We don't hear it. What? And I'm like going, oh, okay. Six months later, the nitty gritty dirt man came yeah. out with Mr. Bojangles and just soared to the top. Love that song. Yeah. Their version specifically. Yeah, so we have that song on that album. But uh, I would say 70% is original. Yeah. Anyhow, um, so when that group broke up, we, um, we went to uh, the, the girl who was on that. Did we get married? I think we got married at that time. And the two of us were, um, were singing together. And my ex-brother-in-law said, uh, you should be living right in good body. Her being the good body, that would be a good title, yeah. a good thing for your name. You know, living right and good body. And so when we split up, I just kept living right. And then uh, the wings thing, and then I put that together. I've been living it down I mean, forever. <laughs> and I, I think it really hurt. But um, yeah, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't stand that name. But you can't stand living right? Or no, wings? living right. Okay. Wings has been a tough name to hang handle at times, you know. I was in uh, Alabama making this TV show called Moving On. Mm -hmm. And this was like, you know, in the early 70s, I think. And we were out in the middle of nowhere on this highway and trees just everywhere. It was just forest and this highway. And we were shooting there and it was like, there were lights, but there were cop cars there preventing traffic and all that. And this one cop who was just cut you know, I mean, just says, come here, I want to show you something. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, no. All right, does he know I'm a liberal? <laughs> so he goes and he, he pops his trunk, and there he has a, uh, it's an M1 carbine, which is, you know, it holds a lot of shells. And okay. It's a rifle, and it's uh, still, it's, uh, nickel plated or silver plated, whatever it is. 
And then he's got a, a 44 Magnum, beautifully put, which, which is nickel plated. Then he's got some grenades that are spray painted silver. And he's got all this shit in the back of his trunk. And he says to me, I'm like going, wow, that's really cool, man. That's really neat. <laughs> Jesus. Get okay, me I just don't want to die. Really, and we're all alone, you know. And it's <laughs> Alabama, and it's everything you've ever heard, you know. Yep. It's like, and it's the early 70s, so, you know, it's like Martin was killed, you know, just a few years ago. You know, they've got some laws, but, you know, laws don't change people's minds. Nope. Anyhow, it's scary times. Yeah. So he goes, you know, when one of those boys gets out of line, what we do is we're going to put a bullet in his head and feed him with the alligators. Why? Alligators digest everything, including bones. I'm like, going, wow, okay. God, just let me live here. You know, let me get out of here. And he goes, so how did you get that name Wings? And I go, Wingback, Oregon State. Now, I was going to play football there, but I lied, man. I went, Wingback. You go, oh, you're a football player, were you? And I went, oh, okay, this is my ticket out of here. Yep, yep. Yeah, man. Well, you, you were blessed with uh, another thing in that moment of being a big white guy. And unfortunately, uh, you know, oh, that, yeah. because that, that could have been a really scary situation. It was a scary situation. It was scary on top of that. It was, yeah. it was, yeah, you're a white guy, but you're also from Hollywood. Yeah. And Hollywood, you know, it's like, we don't like your type around here, you know. Yeah, but you must, you, but you had the wherewithal in that moment to be like, okay, I just got to live in this situation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't fight that. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. scary shit. That, that, yeah, you can't win that fight. So the cliches are true sometimes when they're like, oh, we don't want your Hollywood types here and all that kind of stuff. And then it kind of winds up in movie. You see that those cliches in movies and everything. But like all cliches, they come from somewhere, you know? Well, a lot of it comes from us. I mean, you, you take, uh, we were doing this film called Long Out Summer. Mm -hmm. Don Johnson, yep. Sybil Shepherd, me, Jason Robards. Ava Gardner. Yes. Oh, Ava. Jesus. But anyhow, you know, you go, you go in these towns, and we went to Thibodeau, Louisiana. Yeah. We're in Thibodeau. And, you know, the, the bar is everything. That's where you go. And pretty soon, you know, a lot of the girls start showing up, you know, because they're moving people here. Yeah. And you're just like going, well, fine, you know. And then you find out they're married. And, you know, hopefully you get out of town before the husbands, you know, get, get word of it. But, I mean, we bring a lot of it onto ourselves. But the other thing is, is when, when you go into a community and they see you working before they get up in the morning and when they're going to bed at night, yeah. you're still working out there. Within a week, you really have their respect. That's cool. And they know that, uh, you know, we're, we're a hard-working people. Yeah. But, you know, there are a few of us who are like, you know, bend it, baby, you know, and like, <laughs> go, I'm on location. Well, so, so you, you got a documentary coming out about your life. How about that? That's scary. Uh, I mean, it's, it, Corey and I would probably say it's about damn time. Yeah. yeah. And how did that all come about? These guys, um, they're filmmakers. They, uh, they made a film recently called King Cohen, which was a film about Larry Cohen, who was a yeah. filmmaker. Yeah. But, you know, 
They're, they're, they're all, you know, within show business in some way. But they formed this group. And during the pandemic, every Friday, they watched a film of mine. Okay. And they became this club. They called themselves the uh, Hauser Knots. Nice. I was asked to give them a call and just say hello. You know, and, and I did. And they, they, they were totally taken off guard. You know, they didn't think I would call them. They're watching, you know, a film of mine every Friday night. Yeah. And so I'm way up on this pedestal, you know. Of course. Right. And so, you know, they didn't expect me to call them when I called. They, you know, they got all nervous and everything. It was cute. And then, I, I don't know, a week later, they, they went, do you want to, can we make a documentary? And I went, great, that's sweet. And I, we met and I said, uh, did a couple of things, you know, I, I wanted to be dignified. I don't, you know, it's just, I, just, you know, slasher shit. Yeah. And you know, I said a couple of other things. And we went to this place called Canale Players, which my father built. And we did my interview there. And I did about 18 hours like this, just wow. talking. 18 hours, three days. And then I don't exist now. What they're doing is they're interviewing people. Mm. And I'm finding out on the QT who they're interviewing, right? But they're interviewing friends and some people I don't even know. You know, but I, I don't exist now. It's like, you've done your part, now we're gonna go do this, yeah. and we don't want you involved in this, you know, which I understand, you know, but it's, it's a little discerning, you know. It's like, they, they've, they've got Ed Zwick, Francis Fisher, you know, I think we're gonna get Russell Crowe, you know, a few right. others, yeah. So anyhow, it's like um, Gary Swanson, the guy who played uh, the comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. uh, He's an acting teacher, I think, yeah. in New York or something now. Or and something. then they got, they got Callie and my partner, you know, so, you know, they and a few other people so far. So anyhow, that's what they're doing now. And it's, it's really weird, you know, oh yeah, yeah, you know, it's like, go away. It's a weird thing about these interviews sometimes. Because you may or may not develop a relationship with the person you're talking to, and you might be like, you know, that's a cool person. Yeah. And there's been many times that Corey and I have met a cool people, and outside of this, and we're, he's an art, he's an artist, I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. We're all artists in this way, and you know, I've always lived my life. If you think someone's cool, and you want to continue a relationship with them, then you put in that work. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. You know, if it's if it's just if it's just a job, and then that's it. Okay, fine, that's cool too. Right. You know, but you you, met, you have a real heart to heart conversation with somebody. Yeah. You sit down with them. You're 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 opening up things that you might not tell anybody else. Oh, yeah. you're Like you know what? I'm going to share this. It's about time to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's meaningful. Yeah. And having you on our show is meaningful. Right. And you as a person. Are a meaningful person. Thank okay. the gods or whoever the hell created this universe that at your age, I don't care if you're 76 or 42 or whatever, like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like you're here yeah. and you're here with us yeah. and you're spending time with us opening up. And that is, uh, I cannot express enough how appreciative we are yeah. of that. That's fantastic. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, how do you spell your name? Z A K. Z A K. So that's the normal way. Well, no, the, the back story is I'm Zachary. Right. Uh, I spelled my, my I, I went by Zach, Z-A-C-H. But then right. in, in first grade, I said, that's, this is it. that spells Zach. <laughs> so my first grade teacher, <clears throat> I'm writing, 
uh, I'm writing Z-A-K because I thought it looked cool. My first right. grade teacher says, you can't spell your name like that. Your, your name is Zachary. Oh, yeah. I love it. And then my mom said, my mom had to come down. Beautiful. And yeah. she said, my son can spell his name anyway. Good mom. <laughs> and the teacher's like, well, but yeah, but here. And she's like, I don't care where we are. This is in wow. Detroit, you know, outside of Detroit, Royal Oak. Right. He can spell his name however he wants. Fantastic. And the rest is history. And I've always kind of lived by that drama of like, do, do you, be you to the to the way it makes you happy. Right. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. And I've raised my son that way. I hope my relationships are that way too. Right. Be the best version of you because ultimately that's what's going to make the world a better place. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. I have a stepson named Zach. Oh, how do you spell it? Z-A-K. Oh, there you go. Oh, really? Uh, I, pay, I spell yours Z-A-C-H. Yeah. I think it looks cool. I think it, it does. But, but I'll spell it Z-A-K. When, I, when yeah. I've been spelling my name Z-A-K for the past almost 40 years now right and, and creating a brand myself yeah whatever right. the hell who knows <laughs> absolutely anyways um have you written a letter yet the have, letter to your mother oh no i talk to my mom all the time but no have you written the letter no it's the letter it's the letter that counts not the talk okay you write a letter two-page letter thanking her okay your son will do it one day i hope so it'll kill you well, Corey knows this. I wrote, I write a note to my son every day, yeah. every day in school. So since he started preschool, which he was uh, two years old, I've been writing a note every single day. Oh. I'm up to 930 notes. You don't just write it, you also draw something on it too. Like he draws, it's, it's, it's amazing, it's awesome. Oh, yeah. this is the best thing I've ever Callie's seen it, you can ask her on my Instagram. That um, is so beautiful. Yeah, so I'm up to... I'm killing them, dying, that's incredible. Yeah, they're called Notes for Bodhi. Yeah. And it's become a thing. Can you make a book out of it? I'm going to. Oh. This summer I'm writing a book. Volume one. Because I'm in a unique perspective. I'm a full-time dad. Right. Raising my son to the best of my abilities. Right cultivating who he is as a person, want him to be who he is, right. not who I think he should be. Absolutely. And uh, the journey, you know. Yeah. And maybe other dads out there can learn a thing or two. Oh, fuck yes. Put a oh, smile on someone's God, face. yes. Yeah, so there you go. I know. And you know what? People, when they find out about that, they'll do that. There will be fathers that will do that. Yeah. That'll mean, you know, because fathers are so absent most of the time. You yeah. Know? There's a note? Are you kidding? A day? Yeah, every single day. Oh, that's so I say to Corey, and I've said to other people, how cool would that be? Every time you wake up, every single morning, someone yeah. said to you, you're awesome. You're and cool. I love you. And I love you. Yeah. How great would that be? This world might look a little bit different. Oh, totally. It's important. Every morning, Callie and I wake up. It's good morning, I love you. Never miss it. That's how you start. Good morning, I love you. You know. That's how you start. You don't wake up going, I gotta piss, I gotta do that. <laughs> fucking nightmare. It's good morning, I love you. Even if you don't mean it because you're so pissed off, so it starts the day. Yep. But you're absolutely right. The letter to your mother, though. Yeah, I like this. Continue, that's the please. one. Two pager. Okay. Thanking her. She'll never be the same. I'm, I'm gonna steal that, and my mom's gonna cry so much. <laughs> and that's what you want. They'll take that, they'll sit in the room, and they'll die because. Parents very seldom get the kickback, you know? You're right. They get it and they oh, mom, I love you, I love you. Yeah. No, take the time, write the letter. Yeah, you know what? Um, this has been an honor to have you on oh, the show. Thanks, me too. And, this has uh, been amazing. Wings, this was 
a pleasure, an honor. Beautiful. Grateful, so grateful. Uh, you set the tone for our day. I hope everyone listening, this just brings a whole bunch of light to them. Definitely check out Wings and Callie's movie, Even God. This female is not yet rated. And we have all the links in our show notes. You can check all that out. Go check it out, guys. Go listen to the music. Enjoy it. And Wings, <laughs> thank you for being on our show. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure for me. Thank you so much, sir. This is great. All right, guys. Corey, you take care of yourself up there in the uh, the outback. <laughs> of course. I'll, I'll smoke one for you uh, for, for years ago, years gone by. Thank you for listening to Podcasting After Dark's exclusive interview series with Wings Hauser. And, as always, thank you for your support. <laughs>